I'm going to pray before we uh, jump into this. And so you pray for me and I'll pray for the study. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that's open to receive the things that you'd want to share with us today. Help us to understand, to see from your perspective, and then, Lord, to uh, have us experience, for, for many of us, your grace and uh, your love, and, and uh, we just look forward to you doing that as we open up this passage of Scripture. Be with us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. Well, I've asked you to turn to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 19. We have decided to take a few weeks to look at the subject of Bible prophecy. Now, um, one third of the Bible, as we said over the past few weeks, is prophecy. So it's good to take some time and, and look at that. And we've been looking at the, the subject of end times prophecy or last days prophecy. And we talked about how the Bible talked about when Israel would become a nation again, that would begin that time period that we'd call the, the last generation, the last days, and the, the end times. And uh, Israel is the only nation on the planet that existed as a nation, ceased to exist as a nation, and then 2,000 years later, just as the Bible said, became a nation again. And so as we've looked at Bible prophecy, we've been looking at the things that God said would take place, but they began to take place in the time after Israel became a nation again. And so we, we've seen that. We're going to see that again today. So we looked at some very, very straightforward end times prophecies. But today, I want to look at something that has become very prominent in our country and in the world since Israel became a nation, since Israel became a nation again. And it's escalating. It's continuing, and, and it's uh, what we'll see. So Some see this as a prophecy, an end times prophecy, because it really fits the picture. And we'll talk about why as we go. Others say, well, it's not really a prophecy, but it sure is a picture. It's a paradigm of how God sees things and how God responds to certain things. So we'll see that as as we go. But I want to begin today on your outlines, uh, about 960 years before Jesus was born, the temple was built. Solomon builds the temple. Solomon is the son of David. And he builds the temple. They have a great dedication service. And then after that, Solomon has a dream, and then God comes to him in the dream, and God says this on your outline. He said, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And, and so you're going to hear a lot of this verse in this time period. I mean, it, barely a day goes on. If you go on Facebook, somebody's, somebody's posting that. Uh, one of the interesting things, and in, in that's a, it's a wonderful verse, but about 300 years after that, in the 600s B.C., you, you have the, the time period of the prophet Jeremiah. And all of a sudden, God begins to speak, and his message is not the, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. His message changes. And I'm, let me just show you a, a couple of examples. So in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, God says, as for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up a, cry, a prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. And then another time, he says, therefore, do not, therefore he do, what is that, Steve? <laughs> therefore he do, therefore do, not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or a prayer for them, for I would not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. Disaster is coming. And then finally, 
The next verse, do not pray for the welfare of this people for when they fast, I'm not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to dot, dot, dot. You look it up later on. I'm not going to read that here in church. Not now. Later on, look it up and see what God says. So something had happened. Something had happened and it was so wicked before God's eyes that he said, don't even pray because I'm not going to hear that. They had allowed something to come into their nation. And we're going to see that this is something that has come into our nation. Now as we get into this today, if you understand what we're going to talk about today, you'll understand the whole book of Jeremiah. So when you read the book of Jeremiah, and I hope you do with this understanding, it'll make a lot more sense. So you have this prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah there on your outline, his name means whom Jehovah or Yahweh has appointed. Now he will be in contrast to the other prophets whom Yahweh, Jehovah has not appointed. So that's going to be very important for our study today. Jeremiah is one of the most revered prophets. He's known as the weeping prophet. Uh, Very few people listen to his message. As a matter of fact, it's not recorded that anybody listens to his message. And he's the one that God had called. He speaks, about a specific, he speaks of a specific circumstance in that country, but many people believe that he's an end times prophet because he then, as he speaks about that, drifts off and you get the sense you're speaking of something way off into the future. He's quoted over 50 times in the New Testament. Half of those are in the book of Revelation. So people look at him and say, there, he's an end times, end times prophet. So he will be a prophet over the reign of five kings. It's a a long period of time. And so because his prophecy uh, takes so long to come about, many people just didn't, didn't give it a lot of attention, although it's going to happen. He's deeply patriotic and he hates seeing what he sees taking place in his nation. So there in your outline, chapter 19, this is in the early 600s BC. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 19. And it says, thus says the Lord, Go and buy a potter's earthenware jar. Some of your your Bibles will say clay pot, and that's more clear. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests. So he's going to be speaking to elders, uh, people, priests, government officials. Verse 2, he says, then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Now I've underlined Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. So there on your outline, I put it from the NIV, it says, go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Now, the reason this is going to be so important, if, you've, if you're familiar with Jeremiah at all, you'll know that chapter 18, Jeremiah goes to the potter's house. You don't need to turn to it. And he sees the potter working with pottery on the wheel. And uh, it, it gets messed up, but the potter can just keep, keep making it, just remakes it. Well, that's a personal message for Jeremiah. However, when a pot is made and it's baked and it's broken, you can't repair it. And so that's the idea. So you want to write down a clay jar when it's shattered cannot be repaired. So something has happened in the nation, we'll see, that is not repairable as a nation. And again, this message will be for the people, the religious religious leaders, and, and the government. We're going to find that this is going to be a public and formal declaration of God's irrevocable judgment. So then it said, we had you underline Ben Hinnom. What is that? Well, in 2 Kings, this is what it says. He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. You want to underline that. So that no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire to Molech. They were sacrificing their babies to Molech. 
and uh, this is right outside of the temple inside of Jerusalem proper. So God says, I want you to go there, gather the people, and I'm going to give you the message for this people. So Jeremiah takes the leadership out and he begins to proclaim the message. God says, verse 3, God says, and say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle because they have forsaken me, and I've underlined that, and they have made this an alien place and they have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah have ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. You want to underline that? We're going to find that the blood of the innocent will be their, their babies. And, I've, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire. I want you to underline that. And it says, as a burnt offering to Baal, and then you want to underline a thing which I never commanded or spoke, God is speaking, nor did it ever even enter into my mind. It never entered into my mind. So when it says the innocent, that would be the children that, that were killed as sacrifices. This was so offensive to God that he said it never even entered my mind that, that, some, that somebody would, would do this. And so they were sacrificing their babies. Now that is, that is the equivalent to modern-day abortion. Now, there's some differences. First difference, they sacrificed to Molech and Baal. We sacrifice to the God of convenience. It's still a sacrifice, but, but it's... They sacrificed a few thousand. In our country alone, we have sacrificed over 60 million. And God says, I'm bringing judgment on this, and it's irrevocable. Interesting, uh, not just has that happened in our country, but it's become something that we celebrate. In Oprah Magazine, July of 2018, um, under the section called Inspiration, they highlighted how one woman became an activist with the hashtag, Shout Your Abortion. So in our country, it's something that, like then it was a sacrifice, now it's something that they're calling us to celebrate as a badge of honor, as a, as a badge, we did something really great. So I thought it would be important to just take a few minutes and, and share from God's perspective, and this will be very, very brief, about why Christians are so against abortion. But as I do this, there is no self-righteousness in me. When I was in high school, and many of you know this story, my girlfriend and I crossed some lines and she got pregnant. And uh, we did what so many do. We sinned, and we knew it was sin. And so we decided to fix our sin with more sin. And so we made a horrific decision. And, and she went in to have an abortion. When she came out, she did not look like she had been set free or released. And she told me, she said, she said when they were taking the baby out, the nurse said, oh, it's a baby girl. And all of a sudden, like a wave of emotion, it hit me. It wasn't a fetus, it was a baby girl. And it was in that time where I really came to realize what I'd really done. And, and so you know, um, no self-righteousness here. I sought God's forgiveness. And, and what I learned is that God wanted to forgive. Not only 
did he want to forgive? He wanted to restore. And somehow, some way, he's allowed me to be blessed by having a family with 12 amazing children. So it's not just that he wants to forgive, he wants to restore and he wants to, to, to bless. But we have to come to the place where we recognize and, and we seek that, that forgiveness. That makes sense? Okay, so no self-righteousness in this at all. So um, I'm not going to go into, just, just very quickly, I'm not going to go into how we're created in the image of God, and certainly that's true. I'm not going to talk about how uh, Satan comes to kill, to rob, and to destroy. Jesus said, I come that you might have life. So anything that wants to kill is not from Jesus. So we all get that. But I, I want to just go through two verses here real quick. You'll remember the story. Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And so when that happens, she goes to see her cousin, Elizabeth, who is also pregnant. But Elizabeth is pregnant with the, the one that we would know as John the Baptist. He'll be a cousin of, of Jesus. And so Mary, who has Jesus inside of her, and all Christians believe that Jesus is God, shows up there at Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth is also pregnant. So when Mary comes to the door, Elizabeth says there on your outline, says, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, underline that, leaped in my womb. In the original language, one of the things that you'll find is that God always uses the same word baby, whether the baby has been born or the baby is still inside the mommy. Because from God's point of view, it's a baby. So I want you to write this down. God sees John in the womb as a baby, whether the baby's inside or outside. For for God's purpose, it's, it's always a baby. And then we notice that this baby leaps for joy when, uh, when it's close to Jesus. And it says, so write this down, the baby in the womb can express emotion, which means that this baby is conscious, it's aware. And then the baby in the womb can respond to God's pre- presence. And so you want to write that down. So here this baby leaps for joy as Jesus comes to the door inside, inside of of, of Mary. So the, the, the baby inside is fully human from God's point of view. Back in the Old Testament, David, the psalmist, is writing, and he says, and there's some things I want, I want you to underline in this, uh, the my and the me and, and the I and all this. Uh, but he's talking about how he was formed in his mother's womb. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb, my mother's womb, and I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Underline depths, I want to come back to that word. Uh, Your eyes have seen my, and then underline unformed substance, unformed substance. And in your book they were all written, the days which were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So here you see that it's God who is the one who is forming the baby in the womb. David says, you are forming me inside of my my mom. And it says, the days which were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. God had a purpose for this baby, even before he was born. And then we underline the my and the me and the I. And the, the reason that's important is because there are those, even some Christians will say, well, it's okay you know, if you take the abortion pill and, and you know, it's, it's right after that or it's in the first trimester, it's okay to do that. But I, I want you to notice that he says, you are the one who is forming my unformed substance. Now what that means, the unformed substance is an embryo. It's, it's before it begins to take shape. 
And so he keeps saying, my, my, me, me, I, I. And the idea, David says, when I was still an unformed substance, you know, I was an embryo, it was still me. It was still me. And so God sees the baby as that person from the point of conception. Does that make sense? So, so for that reason, Christians take a stand against abortion because they realize that from God's perspective, that's a baby inside of the mommy. Uh, very quickly, uh, had you underlined the depths of the earth. Um, the word depths there, if you look that up in the Hebrew, it just means womb. And so you can look that up and you can see that. So it's not that God has this underground workplace where he's forming the babies. It's, it's literally in the womb. So some, some will translate it saying, uh, you were there while I was being formed in utter seclusion. That's probably a better translation. I didn't put that on your outline. So, so God says, I would never think of killing a baby. And, and there's a national judgment that comes with this. There's going to be personal forgiveness, but there is a national judgment. So here's the judgment. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. Therefore, uh, Jeremiah is speaking to all the people, therefore the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer, no, no longer be called Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the valley of slaughter. And I've underlined that just to, just to uh, remind us. I will make void the council of Judah and, in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. And I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. And I will go also make the city a desolation and an object of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters. When you look at our country, would you say that there is an increase of disasters? Interesting thing also, it talks about in the verse before about how the military is not going to be successful. Do you realize that abortion became legal in 1973? Does anybody know of a war that we've won since then? I mean, when you think about it, we didn't win Vietnam. We've been in Iraq and we've been in Afghanistan. We're, you know, we're still in all of these places, but there has not been a decisive win other than Grenada. And uh, that was one weekend. And most of you don't even remember that. Do you remember Grenada? Yeah, I'm a Grenada era veteran. So verse nine, I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and distress which they're with which, with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. Uh, we have no ability to appreciate what it's like to be that desperate. But that actually came true in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar surrounds the city of Jerusalem, doesn't allow anybody to go in or out, and the people literally resorted to cannibalism uh, and, until they were completely captured. So this is uh, God's judgment for for that country that allowed that to come into their country. And it's a judgment, we'd say, biblical proportions. So that's what Jeremiah is told to say up to that point. But then you come to verse 10. Then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, just so I will break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, underline, which cannot, again, be repaired. And they will bury it in Topheth because there is no other place for burial. This is how I will treat this place and its inhabitants, declares the Lord, so as to make the city like Topheth. Uh, Topheth, uh, it just means fire, a place of fire there on your outline. So you see that Jeremiah's message here is not we're going to win this thing back. It's going to be you know, amazing as we go forward. It's a very, very different message. 
verse 13 says, the houses of Jerusalem, the houses of the kings of Judah will be defiled like the place of Topheth because of all the houses uh, because of all the houses on whose rooftops they burned sacrifices to all the heavenly hosts and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Then Jeremiah came from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and then stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people. Now this is important. Jeremiah goes right into the temple. You've got priests, you've got people, you've got religious leaders, you've got government leaders. And Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to bring on this city and all its towns the entire calamity that I have decreed against it because they have stiffened their necks so as to not heed my words. So so how does the religious establishment respond to Jeremiah's message? And I'm going to read this and this is why I do not want to be a prophet. Verse chapter 20 verse 1. Now, when Pashur the priest, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. This is not the positive message we want in the house of the Lord. Uh, So verse 2, Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten, underline that, and put him in the stocks, underline that, that were in the upper Benjamin gate, which is by the house of the Lord. And then verse 3, on the next day when Pashur released Jeremiah, and uh, you can read that later, but uh, what, what hits you is that they don't like this message in the house of the Lord because this is not the message that the people want to hear. So they take Jeremiah, the prophet, they beat him. It says they put him in the stocks. Now we say stocks and we sort of have this mindset of what that is. There on your outline, a stocks, and I won't try to pronounce the Hebrew word, a, a similar instrument, instrument of punishment, compelling crooked posture and distorting. So the idea is they place him in a very uncomfortable position. We don't know what that is. And they leave him there overnight. And this is publicly in front of the people. And uh, keep in mind, they do not give him a potty break. So the next morning when he is released, he has, you know. So the idea is that this is why I do not want to be a prophet, because they beat you and do things like that to you. So What I do love, though, is that Jeremiah has a private conversation with the Lord, how he feels about this. I won't read all of it, but I'll read two verses. So if you go down to verse 7, Jeremiah, he doesn't like that this has happened to him. This is not what he thought being a prophet should mean. And he says in verse 7, Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived and you've overcome me and prevailed. I become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me for each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. Everywhere I go, they make fun of me, they beat me. And and, so uh, this is why I do not want to be a prophet, by the way. But what I love about this is that Early on in Jeremiah chapter 1, and you can read it later, God comes to Jeremiah and he says, you know, Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And therefore, wherever I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. And this is great thing. So Jeremiah thinks, I'm going to be a prophet for the Lord. It's going to be awesome. So Jeremiah has this vision that he's going to be going to synagogue on Saturday. And they're going to say, it's brother Jeremiah. Jeremiah, come on in here. What's the Lord put on your heart today? Share with us. And it's not turning out the way that he wanted. So what, what I appreciate about this is Jeremiah is a prophet and he's having some very strong words with the Lord because it's not turning out the way that he wanted. Have any of you ever had strong words with the Lord because it's not turning out the way that you want it? 
Oh, I'm the only one, right? I'm the only one. So, but, but I love that. God says, yeah, and I'm going to put that in the Bible, Jeremiah. They're going to read that. So anyways, so um, Jeremiah's message to the nation, I put it there on your outline. His message is to align yourself with what God is doing. So it goes on in Jeremiah 27, and we're going to flip over there in a minute. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke like you'd have two oxen tied together. Put it on your neck. Then send word to the kings. Give my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all the nations will serve him. If, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation. So do not listen to your prophets. So uh, this was not the message that the people wanted to hear. God tells Jeremiah, I want you to make a yoke like an oxen, and and, and I want you to wear this everywhere you go so that everybody sees that this is the message that you're to yoke yourself with this king, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Again, this is why I don't want to be a prophet because people beat you and God makes you do weird things. So the message is align yourself with what it is that I'm saying, not aligning yourself with what you wish I was saying. So I want you to turn all the way over to chapter 28. Chapter 28. Have I put you to sleep so far? Okay. Chapter 28. Story goes on. And uh, Jeremiah goes to the temple. And you have, everybody's there. You've got the the priests. You've got the government official. You've got the elders of the people. And and everybody's there. And so as he goes there, as we read this, I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. We'll underline a few things as we go. It says, now in the same year, the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year in the, and I want you to underline fifth month. That's going to be important for our study, fifth month. Hananiah, and I've underlined Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me, spoke to Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and the people saying, so get the picture, everybody's there. And so Hananiah is going to give this very public proclamation to Jeremiah. And here's what Hananiah says. Thus says the Lord, underline the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Here's the message. I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. And within two years, now you want to underline two years, two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all of the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I'm going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And so I, I love that. I love that. This is, this is his big message. Now there's a couple of things that we need to know. First of all, Hananiah is, is, is considered a prophet. And uh, his name there on your outline just means God has favored. Would you say that's a good name for a prophet? God is favored. And uh, not only that, his dad's name is Azur, which just means to surround or to protect or aid. And he's from Gibeon, which I didn't put on your outline. It just means the royal city. So this guy has the background. He's very, very popular among the people. He looks great. Again, a great background. And he stands in the temple and he publicly declares and he uses a lot of God talk. God, the God of hosts, the Lord God, this is what God is going to do. And what we find is that he gives the popular message of hope and restoration. We're going to win it back. 
and our best days as a nation are ahead. And everyone wants to listen to Hananiah. There's only one problem with Hananiah. He's a false prophet because he's saying what God is not saying, but he's attaching God to what he wants to happen. And he is a false prophet. So he's saying to everything uh, that, that the people would want to hear. Now, what's interesting is we went through, and you'll remember back in Matthew 24 when we looked at it a few weeks ago, and they asked Jesus three questions. When will these things happen? What's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And one of the things that Jesus says three times in that chapter, and I put it there on your outline, he says, at that time, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And so the last days will be filled with false prophets. And we've looked at what the Bible says concerning the last days and those things that will increase. But you're going to hear a lot of people giving Hananiah's message because it's the message that everybody wants to hear. I think Hananiah became a false prophet with the very best intentions. He's like the rest of us. He loves his country and uh, he wants God to do something, but it just wasn't what God was saying. Well, I love Jeremiah's response. I think everybody's looking at Jeremiah at this point. They're wondering what Jeremiah is going to say. And uh, I think Jeremiah becomes very, very quiet and has that pregnant pause. And it says, verse 5, Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and the presence of all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. Now, they, they want to paint the picture that everybody's looking at Jeremiah. It's very, very public. I have often envisioned after this message that Hananiah gives that Jeremiah is very quiet and then he just starts going. And then verse six, it says, and the prophet Jeremiah said, amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all the exiles from Babylon in its place. And uh, what I love about Jeremiah is that uh, he uses some good sarcasm. And I've always appreciated that about him. Then I think he, he has that pregnant pause again and he waits. All eyes are still on him. And then verse 9 he says this, or verse 7, he says, Now, yet here now, the word which I am about to speak in your hearing and the hearing of all the people. The prophets who were before me, before you from ancient times, prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. And the prophet who prophesies of peace, when that word of the prophet comes to pass, then the prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. So the first thing that Jeremiah says, he says, I'm just telling you what all the prophets have already said. It was about a hundred years before that when Isaiah said this there in your outline. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, who's the king, hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord Almighty, that the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Interesting thing. Uh, I'm just saying what the prophets have already said. You don't want to hear it. But then verse 9, he says, the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the, Lord of the, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. Hananiah knows uh, what Jeremiah is saying. All the way back in Deuteronomy 18, it says this. 
but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. It's a very, very strong warning about making sure you don't attach God to your message. Well, this infuriates Hananiah. So verse 10, it says, Hananiah the prophet took the yoke, Jeremiah is still wearing it, from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so I will break within two years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations. And then the prophet Jeremiah went his way. I always envision him saying, okay, and his head's out. Uh, Again, why I don't want to be a prophet. Verse 12. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said, oh man. After Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah saying, go and speak to Hananiah saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood and you have made instead of them yokes of iron. That's how it's going to be. This was wood, now it's going to be iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations and that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then he says, and they will serve him. I've underlined that. And I have also given him the beast of the field. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah the prophet, uh, I've underlined this, listen now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die. And then I've underlined, because you have counseled rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year in the seventh month. I want you to underline the seventh month. Again, Hananiah, I believe, became a false prophet with the best intentions. He loved his country. And the people were following him, but he was misleading them because he wasn't saying what God was actually saying. So he dies, in verse 17, it says, in the seventh month. But back in verse 3, Hananiah's message was within two years. Does everybody see that? Within two years. So he dies in the seventh month. But go back to the first verse. The first verse it says, we've underlined, it says in the fifth month. And we've underlined that. So basically what's happening is Hananiah's decreeing that they will be delivered in two years And because this happens in the fifth month and he dies in the seventh month, God is saying, it's not two years, Hananiah. You're going to be dead in two months. And so you see uh, God bringing that that judgment. Did you find that interesting? So let me just say a couple of things in closing. We've been looking over the past few weeks at Bible prophecy. And uh, certainly uh, God's going to take us to the end, but I can't find anywhere in Bible prophecy where it says it gets better and better. We have lots of Hananiahs today who are saying things that God is not saying, but they are attaching God to their message. I want to encourage you to make sure that you don't find yourself listening to the Hananiahs of our day who are telling you something that God has not said, although it's the message that most people want to hear. I would encourage you to make sure that you do not point people to a Hananiah. Because if you point people to a Hananiah, then you bring that judgment 
on yourself. Be very careful who you point people to. It's interesting to me that since Israel became a nation, abortion has become so prominent in our country and we've become the leading exporter of abortion around the world. It's interesting to me God's thoughts on that. Again, if you've been through that, God gives forgiveness. He wants to give forgiveness. But you have to recognize how God really feels about it in order to recognize how much we need to be forgiven of that. So with that, I'm going to close in prayer. And if that's you today, just know that God forgives. He wants to forgive. He wants to restore. And he wants to see you go forward in freedom from that. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, our prayer is that that you would help us to recognize the Hananiahs who have a very popular message, but it's just not the message from you. It's the message we all want to hear. It's the message we'd hope for. But it's, it's not what you've said. We pray, God, that you'd help us to recognize that, help us to discern between that which is truth and that which is error. And then, Father, we pray that you would help us to, to not point to those who would be the Hananiahs of our day, as popular or as uh, wonderful as their message might be. Help us to walk forward in your word, with your spirit, hearing from you. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the forgiveness that you give each and every one of us and how you love to restore our lives and have us go forward and, and become a testimony of what it is that you can do in somebody's life. Thank you for this congregation, their love for you, their love for your word. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.